Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures in regard to the main topic of all of Jesus' preaching, the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that in contemporary evangelism, the gospel of the grace of God has been most tragically and unfortunately separated from the gospel of the kingdom as though there were two gospels. Now, that's an absolutely impossible position in view of the plain text of our New Testament. Acts 20, verses 24 and 25, tie together and equate the gospel of the grace of God as being exactly the same thing as the heralding of the kingdom. In our New Testament, the word preaching is a technical term meaning to make an announcement about the future coming of the kingdom. To herald or preach the kingdom is to put us on alert. It's to sound alarm bells in view of the approaching advent of the kingdom of God. And that will also be the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the great event in which God intervenes decisively and once and for all to set things in order in our chaotic world. It's the great day of restoration to which all the prophets of Israel look forward and of which Peter spoke in Acts 3, verse 21, when he pointed out that heaven must retain the Messiah at the right hand of the Father until the time comes for the great restoration of all things about which the prophets of old have spoken. And that restoration, of course, is tied inextricably with the disciples' question in Acts 1, 6 about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. There is no restoration in the New Testament apart from the restoration of a Jewish kingdom with a Davidic throne re-established in Israel. But note carefully that the Christians are to be involved in that Jewish affair. Jesus was a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus, in declaring himself to be the Messiah of Israel, was staking his claim to the throne of David to be restored in Jerusalem. That's the messianic environment in which the whole of our New Testament is set. And to remove it from that Jewish environment is to make a considerable nonsense of our whole New Testament documents. Jesus was not a preacher of timeless ethics or of pie in the sky when you die. He was a messianic claimant, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the agent of the one God of Israel. Now, what was unexpected about his career was that he had to die before attaining to the kingship destined for him in Israel. But now, as we look back, we know that the death and resurrection of Jesus were essential ingredients in the unfolding of the divine drama. It was through death and resurrection that Jesus not only ascended to the heavens to be at the right hand of the Father, according to Psalm 110.1, but also that he is destined to come back from that position in heaven and to reestablish the kingdom of God and to restore it in accordance with all the promises of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus instilled in his followers an intense vision of that future kingdom, and the early Christians waited in eager expectation for Jesus to break through the heavens, to descend to the earth, and to take up power as the rightful ruler of the world in Jerusalem. You remember the text in Acts 1.11, where an announcement by two angels stated that just as they were seeing Jesus disappear into the sky in exactly the same manner, he was going to return to the earth. Now, it's most difficult for us to share that intense vision of the future with the early Christians as long as we keep comforting ourselves with the unbiblical hope that our loved ones have survived as souls 
without bodies in heaven. To do this simply contradicts the biblical hope of resurrection at the second coming. It directs our attention, most unfortunately, away from the messianic kingdom to be introduced when Jesus arrives to raise the dead and to reoccupy the restored throne of David. It is concentration on that restoration of the kingdom to David, the kingdom to Israel, with which Bible readers should concern themselves if they want to make sense of our New Testament documents. In order to do this, we will have to shed a considerable amount of traditional baggage. Above all, the false distinction between a, quote, spiritual and political kingdom in the teaching of Jesus. Spiritual and physical are not set against each other as in so much popular language. Something can be spiritual if it is material and external. To have the Messiah sitting on a throne and ruling the world from Jerusalem is a highly spiritual event, but it's also quite physical and external. When Jesus returned from the dead, he said, Touch me, I'm not a ghost or a spook. And he then proceeded to have breakfast by the side of a lake. You see, he was spiritual, but at the same time palpable, physical and corporeal. Now this distinction, a false distinction between spiritual and material, has been tellingly criticized by a professor from Yale University who wrote in 1924 the following words. He said this, The straightforward meaning of the understanding of Christ's future hope of the kingdom of God coming has not been and still is not acceptable to a tender orthodoxy. And the reason for this is that the promised event of the coming kingdom did not take place. And so our commentaries are full of attempts to explain away perfectly clear and concrete statements by allegorizing them into a prophecy of the church which would gradually extend itself across the world. End of quotation. In plain terms, this scholar pointed out that the church, embarrassed by the failure of the kingdom to arrive, decided to claim that the church is in fact the kingdom which will gradually conquer the world. Now this theory would do away with the need for the return of Jesus and the restoration of the Davidic theocracy or kingdom. Now the same professor goes on to say that the substitution of our own theory for the gospel of Christ is entirely unsatisfactory. He says this, Anyone who has read the apologetic literature must say that the methods of modern analysis and exposition of the Bible are often beyond his comprehension. Professor Moore then traces the idea of the Messianic Kingdom through an unbroken line from the prophets to Jesus and Paul. From the beginning, he says, when Amos uttered his warning, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, right to the days when St. Paul comforted the Christians who grieved for those who had died before the expected appearance of the Lord, the note of immediacy is just the same. Always the reckoning is at hand, yet always it's to come as a surprise. Then he quotes from Scripture, The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them. Professor Moore says here, Paul was merely repeating the expectation of the future coming of the kingdom as given by the prophets of Israel. And Christ, Professor Moore says, uttered exactly the same warning. The kingdom was approaching with the stealth of a robber. 
But the actual day of Jehovah no one knew, neither the angels in heaven, nor even the Son himself, only the Father. And Professor Moore finishes by saying, the importance of the continuity between the message of the prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul cannot be too much emphasized. Moore insists that Jesus must be linked to his heritage. Jesus' view of the future was simply that of his country and his age. But that link has been severed by the church, and Jesus is then made to float free from the vision of the prophets of Israel. This uprooting of Jesus from the soil of Israel has been achieved by writers who make much of an imagined opposition between the popular hope of a political kingdom and Christ's insistence on a spiritual reign of God in the hearts of men. But Professor Moore says rightly, there was no such opposition as theology loves to draw. The kingdom which Jesus preached was both political and spiritual, and that unquestionably was the form in which it came to him from the molding hands of prophecy. End of quotation. Professor Moore makes another fundamentally important observation. He says the kingdom which Jesus announced was not only both spiritual and political, it was also national as well as universal. Such exactly was the Bible's vision. The kingdom would be administered from Jerusalem and yet extend its godly influence to the ends of the earth. This is precisely what Isaiah and all the prophets meant by the kingdom of God. I quote now from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. It will happen in the final days that the mountain of the Lord's house will rise higher than the mountains and tower above the heights. Then all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come to it and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord God, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways, and so that we may walk in his paths. For the law will issue from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem. Then the Lord will judge between the nations and arbitrate between many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into sickles. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. No longer will they learn how to make war. End of quotation from Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. Now, I think it must be obvious to anyone not burdened by a preconceived opinion or tradition that the church and the kingdom cannot be the same thing. The picture here of the nations giving up their martial arts and learning the ways of peace cannot be harmonized with anything known to us in history thus far. It must, therefore, lie in the future, and it lies, in fact, beyond the day of the Lord, which is the coming of the kingdom of God in glory. Now, when John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, making his important announcement that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, what this meant was that the day of the Lord was on the horizon, and with it the subsequent kingdom of glory to be established on the earth by the Messiah. That's the essence of the Christian gospel. It's a Jewish affair, certainly, but Christianity is in its origins a Jewish affair. It proceeds from the people of Israel. Jesus was a Jew and salvation is derived from the Jews. So Jesus himself said in John 4, verse 22. Now, if we want to make sense of the New Testament and read it with profit and interest and excitement, we must sympathize with the Jewish environment in which Jesus 
and the apostles preached, we have to get a handle on the meaning of the term kingdom of heaven, which of course is exactly the same in meaning as the kingdom of God. If we miss the point and meaning of the term kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, we miss the point and purpose of all that Jesus preached. The kingdom of God is the master thesis of Jesus. It's the term in which the genius of the Christian faith is concentrated. Now, it's important to understand that the kingdom of God is explicitly something lying in the future. Now, certainly the spirit of the kingdom must be attained in the present. The message of the kingdom is present. The sense in which the kingdom is anticipated in the present. But the kingdom of God is primarily the event of the future to be associated with the second coming. It's a very serious mistake of biblical understanding to say that the kingdom and the church should be equated one to one. Now, certainly we may say that the members of the church are those who are in training to be the rulers of the future kingdom, but that's very much a secondary use of the term kingdom in the New Testament. The vast majority of kingdom texts refer to the future. That's why we're praying, Thy kingdom come. Surely anyone can see that by saying, Thy kingdom come, we're not simply praying for the church to come. The church had already come, but the kingdom had not. If the kingdom meant the church, then why did Jesus say, Pray, thy kingdom come? It must be obvious then that the kingdom belongs to the future. I've written a book on this issue of the kingdom of God. We invite you to request from us a free copy for your personal study at home. In it we go through the various kingdom texts and demonstrate that Jesus fits into his messianic Jewish background beautifully. He must be understood in his first century Palestinian environment. Join us again as we continue our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.